Section 9 of Earth's Enigmas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Neil Donnelly. Earth's Enigmas by Sir Charles G. D. Roberts. At the Rough and Tumble Landing. The soft smell of thawing snow is in the air, proclaiming April to the senses of the lumbermen as unmistakably as could any calendar. The ice had gone out of the big Aspohagen with a rush. There was an air of expectation about the camp. Everything was ready for a start downstream. The hands, who had all winter been chopping and hauling in the deep woods, were about to begin the more toilsome and perilous task of driving the logs down the swollen river to the great booms and unresting mills about its mouth. One thing only remained to be done ere the drive could get under way. The huge brow of logs overhanging the stream had yet to be released. To whom would fall the task of accomplishing its release was a question still undecided. The perils of stream-driving on a bad river have been dwelt upon, I suppose, by every writer who has occupied his pen at all with the life of the lumber camps, but to the daring backwoodsman there seldom falls a task more hazardous than that of cutting loose a brow of logs when the logs have been piled in the form of what is called a rough-and-tumble landing. Such a landing is constructed by driving long timbers into the mud at the water's edge below a steep piece of bank. Along the inner side of these are laid horizontally a certain number of logs to form a water front, and into the space behind are tumbled helter-skelter from the tops of the bank the logs of the winter's chopping. It is a very simple and expeditious way of storing the logs, but when the ice has run out and it is time to start the lumber downstream, then comes trouble. The piles sustaining the whole vast weight of the brow have to be cut away and the problem that confronts the chopper is how to escape the terrific rush of the falling logs. Hugh McKelvey, the boss of the Aspohagen camp, swinging an axe, rather as a badge of office than because he thought he might want to chop anything, sauntered down to the water's edge and took a final official glance at the brow of logs. Its foundations had been laid while McKelvey was down with a touch of fever, and he was ill-satisfied with them, for perhaps the fiftieth time he shook his head and grumbled, "'It's going to be a rescue job getting them logs clear.' Then he rejoined the little cluster of men on top of the bank. As he did so, a tall girl with splendid red hair came out of the camp and stepped up to his side. This was Lorette, the boss's only daughter, who had that morning driven over from the settlements in the back country to bring him some comforts of mended woolens and to bid the drive Godspeed. From McKelvey the girl inherited her vivid hair and her superb proportions, and from her mother, who had been one Lorette Beaulieu of Grand Anse, she got her mirthful black eyes and her smooth, dusky complexion, which formed so striking a contrast to her radiant tresses. A little conscious of all the eyes that centered upon her with varying degrees of admiration, love, desire, or self-abasing devotion, she felt the soft color deepen in her cheeks as she playfully took possession of McKelvey's axe. "'You're not going to do it, father, I reckon,' she exclaimed. "'No, sis,' answered the boss, smiling down at her. "'Leastways not unless the hands is all scared.' "'Well, who is going to?' she inquired, letting her glance sweep rapidly over the stalwart forms that surrounded her. A shrewd observer might have noted that her eyes shyly avoided one figure, 
that stood a little apart from the rest, the figure of a strongly built man of medium size who looked small among his large molded fellows. As for Jim Redden, who was watching the girl's every movement, his heart tightened with a bitter pang as her eyes thus seemed to pass him over. Having, for all his forty years, a plentiful lack of knowledge of the feminine heart and its methods, he imagined himself ignored. And yet had he not Lorette's promise that none other than he should have the privilege of driving her home to the settlements that afternoon? "'That's what we're just a-going to decide,' said McElvey in answer to Lorette's question. "'But first, he continued with a sly chuckle, "'hadn't you better pick out the feller that's going to drive you home, sis? "'We're going to be powerful well-occupied, all hands, "'when we get a start on them logs, I tell you.' At this suggestion, a huge young woodsman who was standing behind some of the others, out of Lorette's range of vision, started eagerly forward. Bill Goodine was acknowledged to be the best-looking man on the big Aspohagen, an opinion in which he himself most heartily concurred. He was also noted as a wrestler and fighter. He was an ardent admirer of Lorette, but his passion had not taught him any humility and he felt confident that in order to gain the coveted honor of driving the girl home, he had nothing to do but apply for it. He felt that it would hardly be the square thing to put Lorette to the embarrassment of inviting him right there before all the hands. Before he could catch her eye, however, Lorette had spoken what surely the devil of coquetry must have whispered in her ear. Undoubtedly she had promised Jim Redden that he should drive her home, but— let him show that he appreciates the favor, she thought to herself, and aloud with a toss of her head she exclaimed, I'll take the one that cuts out the logs if he wants to come. The effect of this speech was instantaneous. Fully half the hand stepped forward, exclaiming, I'll do it, I'll do it, boss. I'm your man, Mr. McKelvey. But Bill Goodine sprang to the front with a vigor that brushed aside all in his path. Thrusting himself in front of the laughing McElvey, he shouted, I spoke first, I claim the job. And snatching up an axe, he started down the bank. Hold on, shouted McElvey, but Goodine paid no attention. Come back, I tell you, roared the boss. The job's yours, so hold on. Upon this, Bill came swaggering back and gazed about him triumphantly. I guess I'm your teamster, eh, Lorette? he murmured but to his astonishment Lorette did not seem to hear him. She was casting quick glances of anger and disappointment in the direction of Jim Redden, who leaned on a sled stick and appeared to take no interest in the proceedings. Goodine flushed with jealous wrath and was about to fling some jibe at Redden when McKelvey remarked, "'That's all very well, sis, and has kind of simplified matters a lot, but I'm thinking you'd better have another one of the boys to fall back on.' This here is an unusual ticklish job, and the feller as does it'll be lucky if he comes off with a whole skin. At these words so plain an expression of relief went over Lorette's face that Bill Goodine could not contain himself. Jim Redden doesn't do it, he muttered to her fiercely. The girl drew herself up. I never said he dast, she replied. And what's Jim Redden to me, I'd like to know? And then, being furious at Jim, at herself, and at Goodine, she was on the point of telling the latter that he shouldn't drive her home anyway, when she reflected that this would excite comment and restrained herself. But Redden, who imagined that the whole thing was a scheme on Lorette's part for getting out of her promise to him, 
and who felt consequently as if the heavens were falling about his ears, had caught Goodine's mention of his name. He stepped up and asked sharply, "'What's that about Jim Redden?' Lorette was gazing at him in a way that pierced his jealous pain and thrilled his heart strangely, and as he looked at her he began to forget Bill Goodine altogether. But Goodine was not to be forgotten. "'I said,' he cried in a loud voice, "'that you, Jim Redden, just doesn't cut out them logs. "'You think yourself some punkins, you do, but you're a coward.' And swinging his great form round insolently, Goodine picked up his axe and sauntered down the bank. Now Lorette, as well as most of the hands, looked to see this insult promptly resented in the only way consistent with honor. Redden, though tender-hearted and slow to anger, was regarded as being, with the possible exception of Goodine, the strongest man in that section of the country. He had proved his daring by many a bold feat in the rapids and the jams, and his prowess as a fighter had been displayed more than once when a backwoods bully required a thrashing. But now he gave the Aspohagen camp a genuine surprise. First the blood left his face. His eyes grew small and piercing, and his hands clenched spasmodically as he took a couple of steps after Goodine's retreating figure. Then his face flushed scarlet, and he turned to Lorette with a look of absolutely piteous appeal. "'I can't fight him,' he tried to explain huskily. "'You don't understand. I ain't afeard of him, nor of any man, but I vowed to his mother I'd be good to the lad, and—' "'Oh!' "'I reckon I quite understand, Mr. Redden,' interrupted the girl in a hard, clear voice. And seeing the furious scorn in her face, Redden silently turned away. Lorette's scorn was sharpened by a sense of the bitterest disappointment. She had allowed herself to give her heart to a coward whom she had fancied a hero. As she turned to her father, big tears forced themselves into her eyes. But the episode had passed quickly, and her distress was not observed— as all the attention now turned to Goodine and his perilous undertaking. Only McKelvey, who had suspected the girl's sentiments for some time, said in an undertone, "'Jim Redden ain't no coward, and don't you forget it, sis. But it is queer the way he'll just take anything at all from Bill Goodine. It's something we don't none of us understand.' "'I reckon he does well to be scared of him,' said Lorette, with her head very high in the air. By this time Goodine had formed his plans and had got to work. At first he called in the assistance of two other axemen, to cut certain of the piles which had no great strain upon them. This done, the assistants returned to save quarters, and then Bill warily reviewed the situation. "'He knows what he's about,' murmured McKelvey with approbation, as Bill attacked another pile, cut it two-thirds through, and left it so. Then he severed completely a huge timber far on the left front of the landing." There remained but two piles to withstand the main push of the logs. One of these was in the center, the other a little to the right, on which side the chopper had to make his escape when the logs began to go. This latter pile Goodine now cut halfway through. Feeling himself the hero of the hour, he handled his axe brilliantly, and soon forgot his indignation against Lorette. At length he attacked the center pile, the key to the whole structure. Everybody at this point held his breath. Loud sounded the measured axe strokes over the rush of the swollen river. No one moved but Redden, and no one but Lorette noticed his movement. His skilled eye had detected a danger which none of the rest perceived. 
He drew close to the brow and moved a little way down the bank. "'What can he be up to?' wondered Lorette, and then she sniffed angrily because she had thought about him at all. Goodine dealt a few cautious strokes upon the central pile, paused a moment or two to reconnoiter, and then renewed his attack. Redden became very fidgety. He watched the logs and shouted earnestly, "'Better come out of that right now and finish on this ear-nigh pile.' Goodine looked up, eyed first his adviser, then very narrowly the logs, and answered tersely, "'Go to hell!' "'That's just like the both of them,' muttered McKelvey, as Goodine turned and resumed his chopping. At this moment there came a sullen, tearing sound, and the top of the near pile, which had been cut half through, began to lean slowly, slowly. A yell of desperate warning rose. Goodine dropped his axe, turned like lightning, and made a tremendous leap for safety. He gained the edge of the leading front, slipped on an oozy stone, and fell back with a cry of horror right beneath the toppling mass of logs. As his cry re-echoed from every throat, Jim Redden dropped beside him, as swiftly and almost miraculously as a sparrowhawk flashes upon its prey. With a terrific surge he swung Goodine backward and outward into the raging current, but away from the face of the impending avalanche. Then, as the logs all went with a gathering roar, he himself sprang outward in a superb leap, splashed mightily into the stream, disappeared, and came up some yards below. Side by side, the two men struck out sturdily for shore, and in a couple of minutes their comrades' eager hands were dragging them up the bank. "'Didn't I tell you Jim Redden wasn't no coward?' said McKelvey, with glistening eyes to Lorette and Lorette, having no other way to relieve her excitement and give vent to her revulsion of feelings, sat down on a sled and cried most illogically. As the two dripping men approached the camp, she looked up to see a reconciliation. Presently, Goodine emerged from a little knot of his companions, approached Redden, and held out his hand. "'I ask your pardon,' said he. "'You're a man, and no mistake. It is my life I owe you, and I'm proud to owe it to such as you.' But Redden took no notice of the outstretched hand. The direct and primitive movements of the backwoodsman's mind may seem to the sophisticated intelligence peculiar, but they are easy to comprehend. Jim Redden quite overlooked the opportunity now offered for a display of exalted sentiment. In a harsh, deliberate voice he said, "'And now, Bill Goodon, you've got to stand up to me, and we'll see which is the better man, you or me.' Ever since you grew up to be a man, you've used me just as mean as you knowed how. And now we'll fight it out right here. At this went up a chorus of disapproval, and Goodine said, I'll be damned if I'm a going to strike a man who's just saved my life. You needn't let that worry you, Bill, replied Redden. We are quits there. I reckon you forget as how your mother, God bless her, saved my life some twenty year back when you was just a toddlin'. "'and I vowed to her I'd be good to you the very best I knowed how, "'and I've kept my vow, but now I reckon I'm quit of it. "'And if you ain't a-going to give me satisfaction now my hands is free, "'then you ain't no man at all, and I'll try and find some way to make you fight.' "'Jim's right. You gotta fight, Bill. That's fair.' "'And many more explanations of lack character showed the drift of popular sentiment "'so plainly that Goodine exclaimed, "'Well, if you says so, it's got to be, but I don't want to hurt you, Jim Redden, "'and lick you I can every day in the week, and you know it.' 
"'You're a liar,' remarked Jim Redden in a business-like voice, as the hands formed a ring. At this some of the hands laughed, and Goodine, glancing around, caught the ghost of a smile on Lorette's face. This was all that was needed. The blood boiled up to his temples, and with an oath under his breath he sprang upon his adversary. Smoothly and instantaneously as a shadow, Redden eluded the attack, and now his face lost its set look of injury and assumed a smile of cheerful interest. Bill Goodine, in spite of his huge bulk, had the elasticity and dash of a panther, but his quickness was nothing to that of Redden. Once or twice the latter parried, with seeming ease, his most destructive lunges, but more often he contented himself with moving aside like a flash of light. Presently Goodine cried out, "'Why don't you fight like a man, instead of skipping out of the road like a flea?' "'Cause I don't want to hurt you,' laughed Redden. But that little boastful laugh delayed his movements, and Goodine was upon him. Two or three terrible short-arm blows were exchanged, and then the two men grappled. "'Let em be,' ordered McKelvey. "'They'd better wrestle and fight.' For a second or two, nay, for perhaps a whole minute, it looked to the spectators as if Redden must be crushed helpless in Bill's tremendous embrace. Then it began to dawn on them that Redden had captured the more deadly hold. Then the dim rumors of Redden's marvelous strength began to gather credence, as it was seen how his grip seemed to dominate that of his great opponent. For several minutes the straining antagonist swayed about the ring. Then suddenly Redden straightened himself, and Bill's hold slipped for an instant. Before he could recover it, Redden had stooped, secured a lower grip, and in a moment hurled his adversary clear over his shoulder. A roar of applause went up from the spectators, and Goodine, after trying to rise, lay still and groaned. I'm licked, Jim. I've had enough. The boss soon pronounced that Bill's shoulder was dislocated, and that he'd have to go back to the settlements to be doctored. This being the case, Lorette said to him benevolently, after her horse was harnessed to the pung, "'I'm sorry I can't ask you to drive me home, though you did cut out the logs, Bill. But I reckon it'll be the next best thing for you if I drive you home. And Jim Redden'll come along, maybe, to kind of look after the both of us.' To which proposition poor Bill grinned a rather ghastly assent. End of at the rough and tumble landing.